0: Welcome to another week of antidote stories in medicine. This is Christine. I am so sorry there was not an episode last week, but sometimes when you work with sick people, you also get sick. So because there was no episode last week and because I was not able to release this update about the giveaway for Dr. Howard's book, Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, I'm going to push the giveaway back a little bit. So now you can still enter until this Saturday which is April 13th at midnight Eastern Standard Time. So so my clarification was that, yes, you can enter from anywhere in the world. I will mail the book to you. That is no problem. To enter, all you have to do is take a screenshot of how you shared the podcast. And that counts from if you shared it on March 22nd until now. And any sharing on Facebook, any sharing on Reddit, on Instagram, Twitter, wherever. Just take a screenshot of it so that I can see that you did it. That way I can give you credit and then enter you in for the raffle because a lot of times I don't get notifications that you are sharing the podcast. So this will make it much easier. I will enter you and that was the big update that I wanted to give you last week and so that's why I'm extending the entries. So make sure you email me at antidotespodcast at gmail.com com or send me a DM on whatever social media platform you want to use, Twitter, Antidotes Pod, Instagram, Antidotes Podcast, or obviously on Facebook, Antidote Stories in Medicine Podcast. And I will make sure you are entered. It's one entry for every review, one entry for every share. So you can enter multiple times and then I will do the raffle over the weekend And I will announce it for the podcast that following week, which will be April 15th or April 16th. So tax day for all of us Americans. (laughs) And then hopefully you will pay your taxes and get a nice little surprise of a signed copy of Dr. Howard's book. So that is the little clarification. So now there's a little bit more of a a time window to keep sharing. So, I've already had some awesome reviews from Norway and Great Britain. It's so cool to have people listening from all around the world. And please, please, please keep sharing. And speaking of Great Britain, we are now going to be talking about a little bit of a different area of medicine, veterinary medicine. And this week's guest is from the UK. So,
1: welcome, Naomi. It's so great to have you. Hi, Christine. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so thrilled to be here. I love talking about veterinary medicine on other people's podcasts. <laughs> so I am excited to talk about this with you. I love talking about comparative medicine as well. So it's all awesome.
0: I posted something on Instagram and you were like, oh, I wonder what old-timey veterinary medicine would look like. And I was like, oh, that would be just fascinating to compare them. I think just comparing veterinary medicine to human medicine is just interesting in general. But yeah, so you're an equine vet, correct?
1: I am, yes. So I've been practicing for about 12 years now. And for about 10 of those, I've now become an equine specialist. So um, I actually specialize in racehorses and competition horses and my area of kind of normal day-to-day work uh, is to do with orthopedics and lameness so I spend a lot of time watching horses trot up and down for me <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's basically uh, obviously the, the, the kind of puzzle with veterinary medicine is that they can't tell you where it hurts so um, right. we then spend a lot of time doing diagnostics about what the problem is and how we can improve it in order to create the best performance for equine athletes really so that is how I spend my job. So I grew up
0: riding horses. My mom had multiple horses all the time, and she was a dressage rider, which if oh, anyone that. is not – I mean, she wasn't very good at it. But if anyone does not know anything about horses, dressage riding is like kind of a ballet type of of riding. It's It's like watching paint dry if you're not into horseback riding, but it's very hard. And there was a lot of time with the vet being around going, okay, trot her up and down, see where we're going. You know, is she lame? Is she not lame? She had this trichaner <laughs> yeah. mare, and then she had some um, Danish warm bloods for oh, cool. years and years, but and they're gorgeous. I love, I love riding. Yeah. I miss it so much. Such, it's just nice, so expensive.
1: So <laughs> I know, I know. That's the problem. That is definitely the problem. I haven't actually sat on a horse for about maybe like four or five years, I suppose now. I'm much more likely to be found on a bike or a surfboard because it's a bit cheaper. Um, so. They don't get lame as easily. No, you only get lame yourself. Um, but no, it's um, yeah, it's a great sport. And personally, I am one of these people that does not have a lot of patience. Dressage is, um, I'm more of an adrenaline type of rider. So anything that involves yes. going fast and generally quite out of control is usually more my bag. Yeah, But yeah, I'm a very admiring of the people that do dressage because it requires a a lot of patience and control and skill and balance which you know is is very difficult to acquire and looks incredibly impressive when you do it well
0: yeah I was more yeah. of the jumper cross country person and you know racing across fields and my mother was like no you need to sit there and have balance and isometric you know activity on the horse yeah and people yeah. are like this is so boring um, but yeah. it's, <laughs> it, it's really so much fun So before we were recording, I was asking you, how should I address you? Because here in the United States, veterinarians are doctors. They're doctors of veterinary medicine. And we would always say, you know, uh, Dr. Melor was your last name. And you Mm -hmm. said in the UK, that's not how you are addressed. So what is the training like for veterinarians? What's up
1: with that? So basically, we are a little bit different to the US in the sense of we don't do veterinary medicine as a postgraduate degree. So um, we do we do veterinary as an undergraduate. So I went straight from school at 18 to university to study veterinary medicine, and we take a five year college degree, and then at the end of that five years, that's it, you're done. Okay. So we don't have a doctorate automatically kind of enrolled in our degree education, we are uh, allowed to take what they call a courtesy title of doctor. So the same as dentists in this country. And some people do, some people don't. So our kind of registration through the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, you will be addressed as doctor sometimes. But I think just because... That wasn't the case when I graduated. I'd always been a miss, or and then when I got married, a Ms. And so I have just kind of kept that really. Um, I think also my dad has a PhD, and he always used to tell me that if unless you're an actual medical doctor or, or you've got a PhD, you're a bit of a fake doctor, otherwise, in this country. <laughs> <laughs> so so I uh I've kind of always had that in the back of my mind. And um, so that's why, and and most people. I love it in the States, everyone's quite formal with their vet. But over here, most people would just call me Naomi, like everyone's really casual. Nobody would kind of refer to you as Dr. Whoever, which when I worked in Australia, that was the normality there as well. And I found it really, really funny, actually, to begin with, because I'd never been addressed by anything other than my first name. And people would be like, oh, I'd like an appointment with Dr. Miller. And I was like, Okay, you can call me Naomi. It's fine. (laughs) I really don't mind. And yeah, so it's just something we've got used to where we're a little more casual, I think. So we would just, you know, call each other just by our first names as usual. So,
0: Well, I think that's especially good when you're spending a lot of time out in a barn and a little bit of a dirtier profession. And, you know, it's a very casual profession even though there's a lot of yeah. knowledge behind it <laughs> yeah
1: i mean like i wear jeans i wear jeans to work you know i'm not a kind of i mean i try and dress more smartly i work at the racetracks as well so i dress more, much more smartly when i'm at the races and you know there are certain occasions this year i'm lucky that i'm going to work at royal asco which is a really big oh. huge occasion in this country um and then you have to dress for like the royal enclosure with a dress and a hat and like shoot you know high heels and everything so it's kind of uh it's just a bit horses for courses but when I'm on my sort of daily <laughs> rounds getting dirty yeah I'm I'm definitely in my jeans and boots so
0: I think yeah. a horse would take quite a big advantage of a white coat if you were to wear one around them <laughs>
1: <laughs> they would freak out they actually I think they don't really like it if you're wearing anything too bright and actually I don't think it's a great coincidence like you know people would wear a lot of kind of navy or green or black or whatever just we tend to I would just tend to wear t-shirt and jeans or whatever you know just it's nice and easy so it's all good
0: especially racehorses because they're young and usually it's stallions right they're a little bit more finicky and flighty
1: yeah, I mean, I love the babies. You know, I've done a lot of breeding work and reproductive work over the years, and I actually love the young horses and young animals. So, the same as in the states over here, they race at two, three, and four, um, and that you know they're they're still quite babyish when they first come into the racing stables, and mm-hmm. um, I really like their personalities at that stage. <laughs> I think they're quite, it's a bit like kind of teenage children they are a bit sassy. But yes, they're they haven't been sort of blemished by life yet, you know, they're kind of, they're sort of quirky and a bit inquisitive and, and they're often just really fun at that age. So um, I really enjoy them then. And I think lots of people tell me that they're nervous of horses because they're really big animals. And I think if you haven't spent time with them before and you don't really know what you're doing, they can be quite intimidating. But uh, I guess when you I've been around them a long time and you pick up the cues and the one thing I really like about horses and I always say to people about overdoing dog and cat work is they tend to give you plenty of warning before you have a problem whereas me I am not a cat person I would really freely <laughs> say that to anybody I love dogs I am not a cat person and I find the kind of art of attack surprise attack to be quite um, <laughs> tricky with cats particularly when they're in your consulting room so I much prefer with the horses they tend to give you a really good warning before they get too pissed off with you so
0: I feel like horses don't really want to mess with you they only do it because they're afraid of something as opposed to cats sometimes they have a little bit of an agenda and certainly I have this little tiny fur ball of a cat that beats up my 100 pound lab all the time (laughs) and he's just like I'm having a bad day, now you're gonna be my victim. And my poor yeah. giant lab is like, what did I do? I and I, <laughs> and yeah. I I have never seen like a kind of a vindictive horse, really, um, unless no. you know, people have made them to be that way. That uh, they're just yeah. these gentle giants for the most part unless they're really afraid of something. Although I've definitely been whacked in the head by a horse just because (laughs) they were looking around and they got startled and it was my fault for not paying attention.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I have had... I guess one of the kind of um, less great parts about being an equine vet is certainly in this country, and I think it's the same in the US, it carries one of the highest risks of any profession you can be in in terms of um, injury or accident. And um, I have had two sets of broken bones at work in 12 years. So, which was, again, I don't really think the horse's fault. It was sort of just one of those things in both occasions where it just happened and it wasn't really anyone's fault. It wasn't mine. It wasn't his. It was just one of those kind of things in life. But I ended up getting quite <laughs> kind of smashed about in both vacations. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it does definitely make you think, well, maybe a desk job would be a bit better from time to <laughs> time. So, <laughs> but no, I I really like it. Um, I really love working outdoors. And that's definitely one part of the job that I would not want to be giving up.
0: It must be really rewarding, though, at times to to help an animal that is not feeling good and helping them kind of get well, obviously, horses have to be on their feet most of the time, anyways, but helping them kind of get back to what doing what they love to do because horses do love to work.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things about that I really do like about being a vet. It's a, probably a little bit similar to her medicine and, and, you know, lots of the kind of EMT work is quite often. The clients, so we would say, you know, we refer to the owners as clients and the horses as patients. <laughs> so, um, the, quite often, the clients sometimes are very grateful. And I think sometimes people do just forget to say thank you, but that doesn't necessarily mean they aren't grateful for your work. Yeah, And that's one thing I try to bear in mind. Uh, you know, I, people are quick to complain when there's a problem, I think in all walks of life, whatever you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, gratitude doesn't necessarily come quite so easily to a lot of people. But I I do draw a lot of pleasure from seeing animals back out and about again, you know. And I, to me, I think one of the things I enjoy about my job is when you solve a puzzle and then you work out how to how to deal with it. And yes. I think that's the kind of joy of diagnostics, whatever field you're in, really. Um, right, yeah. And, you know, I when we have complex medical cases or you do something that you think oh yeah god that was cool and that would you know those are the sorts of things okay so you spend quite a lot of your days doing really routine stuff that's maybe a little bit dull but then when you have a cool case every now and again that gives you something to kind of get your teeth into then those are the days that you look forward to at work
0: so what would one of those cool cases look like in the equine world
1: so well, okay. So, yeah. I mean, I love a fire. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of an example now. Um, I I love a fire brigade rescue. They're amongst my top favourites. Um, fire which brigade is rescue. Never, okay. Yeah. So I do. Uh, I've done quite a lot of animal, animal rescue work over the years. Okay. Um, which. It's not your average kind of clinical case, but they're often quite challenging and quite rewarding and satisfying if they go well. Uh, So, road traffic accidents, um, lots of, you know, horses are flight animals, as you said, Mm -hmm. Christine, and they love to get themselves in situations that are just (laughs) quite difficult. (laughs) Um, So, we've fished horses out of rivers and ditches and, you know, stuck in, I are like, you've half jumped a stable door and you've got half your body on one side and half on the (laughs) other, or you've tried to jump out of the lorry you've made a right mess of it or (laughs) you know whatever it happens to be and I used to find those situations quite stressful because quite often the the fire service are amazing at what they do but haven't necessarily always been very well they're not very used to horses or they find them quite scary or they haven't had a lot of animal rescue training and often it will involve field anesthesia or field sedation so we'll often we might do a general anesthetic in the field or whatever that may be so those situations are all just quite interesting and you have to think on your feet you have to problem solve that yeah you have to come up with ways of Dealing with something that you might not have seen before quite quickly, or and and the other thing I found was that certainly sometimes the fight you turn up and the fire brigade look at you and they expect you to lead, and that's not a situation that you find yourself in as a vet awfully often. Mm. And so I think, well, you know, I know how to do my bit of the job, but and you know how to do your bit, but now we need to kind of get this together and make a plan of how we're going to attack it. And those situations I find I find really rewarding. Just more in terms of clinical cases, had a very interesting uh, cardiac case a couple of weeks ago. Um, The heart problems are pretty rare in horses because they have enormous organs. So their compensatory capacity is absolutely massive. Hmm. So they very, very rarely get liver failure or kidney failure or cardiac failure because until they're about 70% decompensating, you wouldn't see any clinical signs of disease. Really? And... It's pretty rare for them to get to that point. They normally die of something else. first. (laughs) So, but this was a horse that I had been looking after for a long time, actually. And he was a very good, in fact, a dressage horse, actually, and a very good horse. And he'd had a cardiac murmur for quite a while, uh, which we'd kind of been sitting on. And he'd had an ECG and an echocardiogram. And uh, we do exercising ECGs as well. So we strap an ECG onto their chest and then we ride them with that on. Uh, to see what the heart does at exercise. And he'd had all of that done and, and we had had a diagnosis of, he had a mitral valve murmur as far as I remember off the top of my head. Okay. And very quickly for unknown reasons started to go into cardiac failure. And I'd only auscultated him maybe two weeks beforehand and everything had been pretty steady. And suddenly he presented with a temperature, a heart rate of over 100, which at rest in a horse, their heart rate should be a maximum of about 40. Really? So yeah, their their resting heart rate's usually between 24 and 40. 24 for an animal that big? I don't know why that's... Yes, they have a very low heart rate. (laughs) Because their heart is massive. I mean, if you looked at their heart, It probably weighs, um, it might weigh two kilos. So what's that, about five pounds Yeah, that heart might weigh. It's huge. And yeah, so he was presenting with a pyrexia of unknown origin and this massive heart rate and was all a bit confusing. What is a fever in a
0: horse? So what is a horse's normal temperature?
1: Um, Up to about 38.5. Okay. I don't know, do you work in Fahrenheit or centigrade? So we Um, work in, so 38.5 centigrade. It's about 101-ish in fahrenheit
0: yeah so 101.3
1: yeah so, okay yeah. so that's that's a fever in a human so he's 100.4 yeah. and above is a hu- fever in a human okay yeah so they sit slightly higher but yeah he was he was sitting around uh probably like 100 and somewhere between 103 and 104 oh. most of the time oh. and yeah just started to decompensate and his and very rapidly went into cardiac failure and we lost him unfortunately Oh, but. You know, it was an interesting case because he would basically had had um, a localized abscess in the foot, which is really, really common. I'm sure you know. Yeah. You probably had the of those in your horses and had developed a bacterial endocarditis secondarily. And oh, okay. that is so rare in horses like I've never seen a case before we see it in cows quite often but we do not see it in horses it's written up in textbooks but the likelihood of you seeing it is is really rare and he sadly his quadriceps tendon I ruptured and and all everything you know he went into into cardiac failure with pulmonary hypertension and It was not good. Um, So they made a decision to to put him to sleep, which is always sad, but um, was the right decision in this case, I think. That's just an amazing
0: story because also we had a a guest on here talking about how she got a viral endocarditis and then she ended up getting a a heart transplant and she was on ECMO and so like bypass and all these things. And it's like, (laughs) <laughs> she's a good friend yeah. of mine so I'd be like wow Alyssa if you were a horse they would have put you yeah. down um, by <laughs> now but <laughs> that's a really big distinction between obviously veterinary medicine and human medicine is that moment of you know when do we say enough is enough how yeah where, where do you guys kind of decide you know when is the end
1: yeah so this is one of the things I find really interesting about my job and it's one of the discussions I have a lot with Friends who are either medical or perhaps even legal, because in Europe we have places uh, in Switzerland where it is legal for people to be euthanized. So there's a clinic that you can go to. So um, end of life care and and assisted dying is a hot topic in Europe at the moment, Mm -hmm. Um, and it's one of the things that I. find really interesting yeah that's yeah it's it's, i think it's there's a growing movement it's probably the same in the u.s that people who um feel that assisted you know legalizing assisted dying would be a good move one of the things i find is that getting particularly a family and if you have various interested parties in any animal be it a horse or a dog or whatever getting people to agree about when the right time for an animal is, is difficult enough. And I think that one of the things I find really interesting about people who think that they would want to choose assisted dying for themselves is that you can make that decision while you are of sound mind and have capacity. But mm-hmm. the pressure placed on someone else to make that decision when you are not of sound mind or and or body right. is extreme. Right, We see that day in, day out that the failure or the difficulty for owners to make the decision on behalf of an animal is massive and hard and my personal feeling is although i think actually i you know i joke frequently and i this is a joke but i'm like mm-hmm. oh i'm stashing some stuff away for myself for when i'm old you know yeah. um yeah but i think actually the reality of it is somebody has to give that injection and somebody has to make the decision about when that's time and making that call is very, very difficult. I think in animals, it sounds a bit cheesy to say it, but with experience, you know, and over the years, particularly if you get to know your clients. So uh, the lady with the the cardiac case has been a client of mine for eight years. I know her really well. She's kind of a friend. And so I I know her and her horses really, really well. And so I can help her make a decision. And I would be quite blunt about when I thought the end was nigh and we're at the point at which we cannot do any more to help you yeah. or help him, should I say. And therefore, if you don't choose euthanasia, he's probably going to have an end or a death that is not as either as aesthetic or as kind. And mm. I think when you put it to people that if you take this horse home and you choose to continue to allow him to live, you may well come down and find A dead horse in a stable or a horse having a massive heart attack in a field or whatever it may be and that is distressing for people yeah and I think the timing of when to make a decision is really difficult I have left horses and other animals in situations where I felt that if I knew the client better I would have pressed because I felt that the animal mm, was I hesitate to use the word suffering but yeah, I could have ended its. I could have ended its pain at that point, but the client wasn't ready. Yeah, and that is a difficult balance to find sometimes because they are the ones that have to make the decision, and you cannot force somebody. I mean, we can, you can, but it involves the police, and in our case, the RSPCA. And I've never been down that road. I wouldn't want to. Yeah, but I think sometimes you maybe have to give it twelve hours for them to come to that conclusion themselves before you come back and they say, "I'm ready now." And that's it's difficult, but I think you. I explain it to people in a way as being a privilege that your animal doesn't have to suffer pain and it doesn't have to die in a way that a human would because we don't have this privilege in human medicine. Yeah. And it's amazing how many people when you say that to them say I would much rather that he or she was gone sooner while they still had a good quali- a better quality of life mm-hmm. knowing that they don't have to suffer and by extension the family don't either. Yeah. Which is difficult ethically when you think about it but It's the way it is. You
0: draw a lot of parallels to human medicine and the conversations that we as primary care providers have, especially when I'm recommending to a patient and their family, particularly family of the elderly, to think about hospice. Mm. Sometimes they're just really not ready. And I'm saying, I think, you know, it's futile to be pursuing a lot of these treatments and interventions. And I'm really suggesting hospice and they're just really not hearing me. You know, it's not necessarily physician-assisted suicide uh, or or dying, but it's hospice is kind of like that next step. And and Mm -hmm. a lot of people are just not listening to it. There are certain patients where you know I've had better relationships with where I can be much more blunt with them. Others, they just you know are not listening. But it's at the same time, it's it's out of compassion and understanding the clinical picture a little Mm -hmm. bit better once you've been doing it for a little while. But I yeah. think we have a lot to learn from that, but it's also a very different world. Mm. It's it's interesting how there's parallels and then it's, also not.
1: <laughs> it's really interesting. And I think just what you're saying about being blunt, I think I have become more frank as I've got older. Yes. <laughs> and in the early days, I would have moved heaven and earth to try and keep keep animals alive for as long as possible. And now... I don't necessarily always think that's a good thing and you know I personally and again this is a very personal point of view I am slightly opposed to some of the really uh, extreme surgeries and operations that are carried out particularly in dogs and cats we we don't really do them in horses but mainly involving transplants and use of implant limbs and things like that because For me, and again, as I say, this is a very personal opinion, I don't think that in an animal that that cannot consent, the level of pain Mm. that goes with those surgeries sometimes uh, and the level of complications that can be associated with them, for me, that is unjustified in some cases and some procedures. And again, I think there are different vets hold different opinions about those sorts of things. Maybe... Other people would disagree with me, but I think that sometimes in an animal that cannot provide its own consent, I think some procedures are done for the sake of the client, not for the sake of the animal. And I think that's an important distinction to make.
0: I think that's a very interesting point because I think we see that in places like pediatrics Mm. or sometimes in geriatrics where there's, again, like hospice or end-of-life care where someone's being, you know, decisions are being made for someone else yeah, who is this care being done for is it really being done for the patient or is it being done you know for someone else's you know internal struggle or the relationship that they have with that person
1: even though it's Mm. not really benefiting the the intended recipient Mm. yeah yeah and it's it's funny how one of the things that comes up time and again that i've talked about a little bit on my own podcast with in terms of compassion fatigue is that it's amazing how often we have people's own experiences or experiences of the medical profession or the death of a loved one as a human that impacts on their decision making about their animal mm. and i find that an incredibly interesting psychological thing as well in terms of humans and you know the i've spoken previously about the fact that clients will lean on you as a professional who is uninvolved in their life but is a listening ear and I'm sure you probably find this all the time yeah I've been to people and said how is Bertie today or whatever it's (laughs) called and they say oh he's fine but I've got cancer or he's fine or but my husband's having an affair or (laughs) oh he's fine but my kid's doing really badly in school or whatever it happens to be and suddenly you're like, oh God, here we go. Um, you know, but there's often so many other things that are wrapped up around the decisions they make about their animals. And one of the things that is, I know that you have a lot of black humor on your podcast, <laughs> probably appreciate this, but we talk about the Christmas clear out because you would not believe how many euthanasias we do before Christmas. Really? And yep. <laughs> and subsequently, immediately post Christmas when people want to give them quotes one last Christmas and and then they decide they want it they've had enough and unbelievable like the the amount of animals we put down in December is so many more than the rest of the year
0: so okay explain this so they they put you they put them down before Christmas because they're either expensive I'm guessing or and then after Christmas because it's they had their Christmas and they opened their presents the horses did and now they're good to go. Is that the reason?
1: Yeah, I think sometimes with, with dogs, it's, oh oh God, the family's coming. Everyone's coming around for Christmas.
0: Oh, we can't put Sparky down until grandma sees him.
1: Either that or, oh my God, grandma's coming and Sparky shits everywhere or whatever it happens to be, you know, we've been putting up with this for a while, but it's probably time. Mm. And <laughs> it's, the horses, you know, they often, when it gets cold, they lose a bit of condition in winter yeah, time. yeah. Trekking out to see them at Christmas. Yeah. Um, so and I'm not criticizing that at all because but it's just uh it's it's definitely the way it happens.
0: And in my very dark humor, I am now imagining like the medical profession with Christmas clear out of grandma before Christmas, and that is so a terrible, terrible joke. And I am not recommending that at all. But it's like, oh she's getting a little up there. We had one less Christmas with her. Yep. That is a joke, and I am not recommending that at
1: all. I'm just saying, I know, I know, I know. But we do. And we also have, we sometimes have Friday clear out as well. So like if you have, this is more in small animal, but like, you know, it was, there would be times when people were like, it's five o'clock on Friday, you've got to kill it or refer it you know it's you know it's which again is like it's just total humor and obviously we do everything for our patients blah 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 but um yes (laughs) those kinds of times when you're absolutely shattered and you've got 20 inpatients and you're thinking oh my god so yes there are it's it's definitely there's a there's a degree of you know veterinary conversation exactly the same in the medical profession which always is so funny like if you hear a bunch of vets in a restaurant talking about rectal exams that's like totally normal oh yeah yeah so yeah it's pretty similar
0: you need the humor
1: i know you do and my worst one is you well i used to do well i used to do a lot of breeding work so which involves spending a lot of time with your arm up a mare's backside Mm. and um The worst one is then when you're in the supermarket aisle and you think, I wash my hands, but I can smell myself. Why? And there's always the bit up the back of your triceps. There's always shit there. And (laughs) it's like a really hard place to wash that you always miss because you can't see it. And it's that moment when you're like, oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) I can smell myself. This is really nice. So So, uh,
0: speaking of breeding horses, so my mom is a very eccentric lady and she had a a stallion then she bred him for a little bit and she decided in her world of being a loving mother this is how she defined it that oh it's your birthday your 16th birthday I'm gonna take you out of school early and we're gonna go see the stallion get collected and oh my god and (laughs) you're laughing um explain to people what a stallion getting collected looks
1: like okay um so so um a stallion getting collected now then so there's one of two ways it can be done he either can so if when the stallion mounts a mare for i'll describe it in like proper terms to begin with when a stallion mounts a a mare for intercourse and you collect them you can either um quotes collect it on While he's mounting a real mare, or they can be taught to mount a dummy. Yeah, this was a dummy. In which case... Yeah, fine. So then basically what they do is they put their front legs onto a rubber and wooden horse... Uh, so he's essentially kind of mounting nothing. Mm-hmm. And at the point at which they're about to ejaculate, somebody runs in with what is called an artificial vagina, Yep. Uh, which is essentially a giant condom with a warm water-based system around the outside of it, which has got a kind of sleeve around the outside to keep it warm because stallion semen is very volatile and it will break down very quickly. So as he's then um, humping a fake wooden dummy you dash underneath with a very hard hat on and lots of nerves uh to dive in there with your giant condom and stick it on his penis and then collect the semen that is produced as he is then ejaculating um we then take that and it's distilled down into lots of different straws um eventually for artificial insemination so it's extended it's purified it's antibiotics are added blah 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 and that can then be shipped out from wherever that stallion is to wherever you want it to go in the world so that is the procedure if you haven't seen it it's a little bit alarming
0: oh especially if you're 16 and then that story is not so scientifically retold at every dinner party from then on by your very (laughs) endearing mother
1: (laughs) um yes it's The point at which you then have to dash under the front legs of a rearing stallion that's mounting something that's not an actual horse—it's probably good it's not an actual horse because then you've got the back legs of another horse involved. Yeah, that is like,
0: what is up with this? Yeah, yeah.
1: So, um, so in, so I work mainly on the thoroughbred. So, in racing thoroughbreds, you're not allowed to use artificial insemination. Really? Um, it must all be done by what they call natural cover, which is one bonk, one baby, is what we call <laughs> it in the UK. Um, so, basically, it just means that it stops one stallion having too many progeny all over the world, um, which is not the same as show jumping, dressage, polo, et cetera, et cetera, where they can use... Um, Pretty much any kind of artificial breeding techniques. Uh, So they have now cloned polo ponies in Argentina. Oh, and they have that's been a successful breeding technique over there. But we certainly in racing, it's it all has to be done with an actual visit, which means that we then fly, we fly the horses around the world to go and actually meet one another. So that's a whole other industry in its own right of they transporting horses. They have one-upped tinder, I am guessing. They have one-upped tinder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just, it's not a quick, quick swipe on a Friday night. There's <laughs> no. lots of preparation involved. So yes, so they transport the stallions between the northern and southern hemispheres. So they will usually stand in either... America, Ireland, France, or Great Britain. And then in the wintertime, they might go to New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, maybe South America sometimes. So they're only breeding when the weather is warm, wherever you are. So currently, it is just the beginning of the breeding season in the UK and Europe and where you guys are. And once it comes to kind of August, September, they start the breeding season in Australia then. So there you go. There. I can imagine that was quite an eye-opening experience for you, Christine. (laughs) Do not envy you.
0: (laughs) And yet I still pursued a career in medicine. I think my sister who is in more of the business marketing side would have probably passed out but Mm. I was like wow that little vet that is running under there that is a (laughs) that is a ballsy little man no pun intended Um,
1: (laughs) well at least it wasn't a dog yes yeah I don't even want to know
0: (laughs) yes yes
1: let's say let's just say it's done manually oh yeah okay Okay. (laughs) so yes that one not my cup of tea personally but anyway There we go. (laughs) There's so many things that most people in their life will never have even thought about.
0: That's not how fertility specialists do it with humans.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really? Oh, there's a niche there somewhere, I'm sure. You
0: know what? You know what? I'm not. I won't speak to that. I'm not a fertility specialist, so I won't know. Um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can't really give the dog a pot and tell them to go to the toilet. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's some
1: magazines in there. (laughs)
0: Uh, So any more, any good, uh, any like good heartwarming horse stories of uh, cases Uh, that went really well?
1: Oh, yeah, loads. Um, So... It's always good when we have – I'm just trying to think of some others. Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess, one of the commonest injuries we deal with, uh, particularly on the racetrack, is uh, fractures. Mm. So we deal with a lot of stress fractures, so same as in human athletes as well. And often they'll be kind of – we just uh, just pin them standing. So we do them under standing local anaesthetic for horses because general anaesthesia is inherently risky if you're a horse. The quoted death rate under general anesthesia for horses is one in a hundred, which is not true these days. But the last study that was done on this was in the early 2000s. So
0: is it because their heart rate is so slow or because they have to stay? I know horses have to like sleep standing up. Is it?
1: Yeah. So there's the, the, there's a few main issues with anaesthesia. The main one is particularly you have to put them on their backs. The weight of their organs is so massive that right. it reduces their venous return massively.
0: Like pregnant ladies.
1: so they tend to. They, yes, yes, very similar. Um, so they tend to become, uh, you know, reasonably hypoxic and a bit hypercapnic, and their their arterial gases tend to get a bit funky. So they generally are quite poor for long anaesthetics. And then we use ketamine anesthesia in horses still, um, which is the best, you know, in in combination with lots of other things. And But still, they can have some quite interesting recoveries. And recovering a 500 kilogram animal, which is generally a flight animal and likes to try and get up as quickly as it can and run around, just means that sometimes they have accidents in recovery. Mm -hmm. So touchwood i did a lot of anesthesia for a while i spent a year ish doing working as an anesthetist and I had one horse in that time that fractured a leg in recovery which was quite an unpleasant experience Aww. but mainly they just yeah they they just can do whatever I mean the clinic I used to work at we had they had had a thousand anesthetics without a death so you know the the rates are much better than quoted but still it's like so much higher than what would be acceptable in human medicine yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we try and do things understanding anesthesia increasingly we just with just sedation So horses sedate very well. So we do a lot of things under standing sedative and um, most of the kind of head surgeries we do or dental surgery or back surgery, you know, lots of breeding, reproductive surgeries are all done standing. And now fractures would be routine, uncomplicated fractures would be probably routinely fixed standing by a lot of clinics. It's surgeon preference, but quite a lot of them will now do standing surgery. So yeah, so obviously when they then rehab and come back to the track you know when you've brought one of those back that's always a good feeling when they ship out and they don't look great but they come back and and they can keep going and and off you go again you know those are always those are always good and the, my favorite heartwarming is is just difficult foldings with a successful baby outcome is always really good because they're just really cute yes to be honest. they are they're so sweet. and foldings are you have about 20 minutes when you return to foaling to have a good chance of a live foal. So you have to be, because a foaling in a a mare is so incredibly explosive and it happens incredibly quickly. If there's a problem, which is quite rare, the things tend to go badly wrong quite quickly. Um, So if you end up foaling something for a long time, you will usually end up with a dead foal and often you'll end up with complications from the mare as well. So a successful falling outcome of a difficult one is always is always really 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 good. So usual labor process for a mare, you said is 20 minutes? Yep. Wow. It's very fast. They they will have a kind of so we have three stages of labor. Their stage 1 can kind of rumble for a while. They also have the capacity to switch off their labor process if they get disturbed. So mm, that makes sense with their flight animals. Yeah, exactly. So there was a really interesting study from one of the universities. Um, it was in North America, actually, a few years ago, where uh, they had a bunch of brood mares and <laughs> the students go around during the night. So they would do nightly checks. So the students are out there every two hours. They put the lights on. They make noise, and it's really most mares will fall at night time. So the majority of falls would be born between kind of seven pm and seven am. And this hospital had a weird stat where nearly all their foals are being born during the day, and. They realized after a while it was because the mares were being poked about by the students so often at nighttime that they they were like, God damn it, leave me alone. I want to give birth in peace. And, And so, of course, they were then flipping things around and those... Falls were all being born in daylight hours, which is great for everyone involved because A, the students get to see them, and B, it's much more sociable for everybody. Um, but they definitely have this amazing capacity to just to just switch off their their kind of early birthing process if they want to. Wow. And then yeah, once they get set into proper, proper labor, they will get down and they push and it's incredibly quick. It's so explosive that it's very rare that they have a problem. They don't get fetal oversized in the way that cows do. Fe- and they fetal oversized, me. you mean like a large? Large foal. Large calf for a small cow is very common in cows. Okay. So you'll often get what we call hip lock. So they get stuck at the hips um, when they're coming out because they come out, if you imagine a foal or a calf, they come out front feet plus head first. So they kind of, like where you would be doing a dive off a diving board is the only way I can describe it. Yeah. So they arc out with their arms, quote, and their head to begin with, and then their body and then their legs will follow behind, uh, stretched out like a diver. Mm-hmm. So if they've got a leg back or a head back or something those can be corrected quite easily because we can get both our hands in and you can kind of manipulate them around and it's only if you start getting you know significant problems one way or another that that things don't go to plan so so yeah they, i mean a is. They generally happen as a problem at about four o'clock in the morning. So you get that call and you're like, <laughs> uh, I don't know where I am. And then you have to get in the car and you still wear your pajamas on or whatever. And you have to get there really, really quickly. And I've driven like a crazy person at some ungodly hours of the day and night. And most of the time with inexperienced owners, you arrive and there's a healthy foal on the ground. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It popped out just after I phoned you. And you're like, yeah, OK, cool. That's great. <laughs> and then, But then other people who you know are really experienced at foaling... You think, oh, shit, if they can't get it out, ah, this is a problem. Right. So then, yeah, then you start prepping for for uh, big deals. Do horses get, like, uh, nuchal cords with the cords
0: wrapped around their, the foal's neck or the placenta is in the way, like, Yeah, placenta previa, or that we get in humans, or is it just not a thing that horses have?
1: So we have – they have a different placental setup to humans – as far as I know. We have something called a red bag delivery, which is sort of similar to a presenter previa. but they the foal is basically delivered with this kind of red exterior to the sack. And, you know, good stockmen would know that you immediately need to slash that and get the foal out of it because otherwise they will become rapidly hypoxic. Mm-hmm. But yes, they, they can do. I mean, often because the foals have got such long limbs Mm. they will often kind of naturally they should naturally sort of break out of their their sack as they come out anyway Mm. in which case they tend to be able to breathe okay and you have to kind of bear in mind that humans have a a nine-month gestation period horses have an 11-month gestation period but they're a lot lot bigger when they're born and they're also a lot more developed when they're born so they would expect to get up, feed, run around, and be ready to move with a herd Mm. within about one to two hours normally. So a healthy foal is kind of, you're on the ground, I'm up, I'm ready to go, life is on, you know. They're not like a baby in the sense that... They're
0: not useless like human babies. Indeed, yeah. yeah,
1: Dogs and cats completely useless when they're born. They just (laughs) are blind and squeak and do nothing. They look like little slugs. But foals are just like... I'm ready formed. I'm fully formed. I'm ready to go. Let me at life. And they will get up and they will go. And that's how they're born. So it all just happens really, really fast, basically. So they seem to be quite well adapted that a lot of the problems we get in humans don't seem to be too much of a problem for them, or they can kind of self-correct or they somehow seem to get through them okay. You know, It's only if they have mainly malpositionings that are a problem. So if they're coming the wrong way around, it's a problem. If they're coming upside down, that's a big problem. You know, Those things have to be manually corrected.
0: Do you ever do a cesarean on a horse?
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 we do. Yeah. Oh, okay. The big hospitals, so in Newmarket, which is near where I live, um, where they do a lot of breeding work, they would do those quite routinely or what the other thing we will do is is an assist what we call an assisted delivery which is basically where you would anesthetize the mare and you it sounds kind of a bit awful to say but you you hang their back legs so that their head is downwards so the fold will drop back down into the abdomen which allows you to then manipulate its position internally and a bit like asking a woman to raise her legs so that uh-huh. you could you can um manipulate a delivery and then once you've kind of got them in the right place inside then you can safely deliver them after that. And that will work quite often if you've got a malpositioning that is not too bad but just needs a little bit more help but it's absolutely exhausting work I think even you know there's not many things as a girl I find that a man is better at me at like I'm a massive feminist and I don't really believe in that Um, but it's physically so demanding but hanging a pregnant mare
0: upside down yeah I can imagine that would be very well yeah no
1: we hang them from a winch but just the actual folding is you know having your arms inside something and trying to manipulate something at shoulder height that's quite heavy is it's really tough and even the boys find it very tough you know we'll often work in shifts and you know you'll go for kind of five or ten minutes and then let someone else have a go because it's just physically really exhausting
0: wow that's awesome. I mean, these are just great stories. It's so it's just so fascinating to hear about something that is so closely related, but also worlds apart from what I do. Like I know all the terms, but they're totally different. Like a heart rate yeah. of twenty four. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big I, know. <laughs> I
1: know. Well, I listened to. It. A friend asked me to listen to their heart recently, and I put my stethoscope on, and I say, like, "Oh my god, it's really fast." And then are I was like, dying? "No, that's, that's probably normal. It's fine. I think you're fine." So, <laughs> no, you your don't have is, a murmur. Your heart is tiny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the horses' hearts are so loud when you listen to them as well, because they just beat really, like, oof, like really strongly. And um, <laughs> so then, yeah, it's just really funny when you go and listen to something else afterwards, but. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. No, it's been a great career. And um, I was very lucky, actually, some of my I haven't even told you any of my craziest stories yet. But some of my best ones come from the very first job I had, which was I went to work overseas for a charity. And I turned up to this island in the South Pacific, which was an amazing place. If you imagine like your best tropical paradise, that's it. Mm -hmm. And I worked for a clinic there Um, and I had thought that I was going to be supervised by somebody but when I arrived it turned out that I was actually the only vet there for a little while and there was no other vets for 3000 miles that's fun and then another girl turned up from london who was also new was also newly graduated and you know was basically the blind leading the blind neither of us really knew anything about clinical practice because we'd just come out of college and we had all this theoretical knowledge but no like practical experience at all yeah and they were like yeah just just crack on you know so we were like okay (laughs) um you know surgery well we'll have a go you know and it was kind of if you don't do it no one else will do it because there is no other, There's no one else to do it, really. Yeah. And our X-ray machine was a, uh, I mean, so old, so old. It was a. It used to spontaneously self-expose, <laughs> and um, we then had to ship the plates on the back of our motorbike to the local hospital, which was only open between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. and pay the radiologists to expose <laughs> to develop our X-rays for us in their machine. So we used to kind of tool off with the X-ray plates under one arm on the motorbike, like up the hill <laughs> to the hospital. Which was just crazy, um, and then if it wasn't right or it was overexposed or actually the machine had just self-exposed and it was a picture of you know someone's foot or whatever. Oh no! Um, you'd be like, oh god, I have to go and take another one. So <laughs> Drove back down and up again. Oh, that's crazy. So yeah, it was just I had six months there, which was. I mean, just the best experience of my life without a shadow of a doubt and was certainly the making of my career. But there was times when I learned a lot of surgical procedures out of a textbook, which is, I guess, what people would have done in the old days, really. Yeah. And just looking at diagrams and anatomical drawings and, you know, trying to kind of fish your way through something that doesn't really look like the textbook. I I did my first amputation on a road traffic accident dog and amputating a hind limb when something is really quite traumatized and looks nothing like a neat anatomical drawing in a yeah, textbook yeah. was really stressful and difficult but you know we learned really good surgical skills in in that scenario and I guess it's a little bit like being a kind of you know charity medic if you're working overseas or whatever you just learn to to deal with very limited resources and very limited supplies of drugs and you just do what you can with what you've got really yeah but yeah my the girl I was with and I were quite we're quite into sailing and um, on Saturdays we used to go to the sailing club and we raced around these little islands in the Pacific and people learned after a while that on Saturdays we would be at the sailing club so they used to turn up with their dogs and <laughs> <laughs> just be like oh he needs help and you'd be like um okay I got a stitch kit in the car like, okay, we'll just do a quick stitch up, you know, like on the balcony of the sailing club or whatever it was, you know, and it was was just a crazy time, but really fun.
0: Wow. I think when it comes to procedures like that, that are so significant, you, and I have never done surgery, but I've certainly sutured things and you're just learning how to do it. And you're like, I'm not great at this and I'm like kind of terrified inside, but I'm just going to pretend that I'm good at this to the patient and inside you're kind of freaking out. But that's how you learn. Like that's how you get good at something is being really inexperienced the first couple times you're doing it and then you just keep doing it. Mm. And that's how you build confidence. It's just working through that fear and that lack of familiarity. You just got to get through it.
1: Definitely. And I think it's something that it's sort of a it conditions your own personality to oh agree, definitely Because definitely. i see quite i take quite a lot of students out on the road with me now and quite a lot of them are very nervous yeah. about doing procedures they are they've been told a lot about litigation and i think <laughs> yeah. a lot of them are quite anxious as well because yeah. they're they're scared that that they are going to have issues with things that they can't control and The one thing about that situation was that I didn't really have a choice, you know, that you just had to get on with things. And we had things that didn't go well, don't get me wrong. I had situations, I had one case in particular that I look back on and I won't go into the details, but I shudder now still. And I think, God, that was bad, you know. And But that was one case out of thousands of animals that we looked after in that time. And, you know, I think when you're in a situation where you either have to sink or swim, you... If you learn how to condition yourself to swim under pressure, mm-hmm. it serves you quite well in life, I think, yeah. personally. But it depends on the kind of person that you are because some people that is just too stressful, so stressful that it becomes a really negative experience for them overall and doesn't allow them to flourish. Right. And I think having periods of controlled... Lack of stress was was important for us because the times when things were difficult was very difficult. And actually I said to my husband and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, and repeated stress like that over a period of time can be really unhealthy and actually leads you to to become bad at your job. Yeah. But having periods of exposure to things that are uncomfortable, which if you then succeed totally allows you to grow yeah. as in my case a surgeon in that situation. But I think whatever you're doing clinically is important that you stretch yourself from time to time.
0: I always say it's amazing what you can do when quitting isn't an option. Mm. And then you get this this confidence of, you know what? It's okay to be wrong sometimes. I mean sometimes you can you can be really, really wrong. And mm. I was listening to your podcast about the surgeon and she says you can't be afraid of failure. You know, there's little failures and there's big failures. And and it was so true that, yeah, sometimes you're going to fail at things, but you have to, what do you do with that failure? And mm. it's not always going to fail, Like, but sometimes you just don't have a choice. Like, there's no one else to ask. Someone's might be bleeding in front of you. You know, you need to be the one to suture up whatever this wound is. And, yeah, you're not the best person to do this, but you're the only person to do mm. this. So so what? <laughs> you got to do it. And now you learned and now you know how you respond in these situations and just staying calm and knowing that you can find the answer, even though you didn't have it 10 minutes ago, like having that confidence in yourself, it totally changes who you are as a person, or at least it does for me. I mean, other people w- would go, nope, I don't want to do this job. I hate this job. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: definitely. But but I think also the other thing I've sort of learned over time is that it's easy for other people with hindsight to criticize your decision making oh, in situations yeah. like that. Yeah, And I've certainly had situations at work where maybe I haven't made the best decision, either clinically or emotionally or in terms of managing a client or whatever it happens to be. But at the same time, I now, my mom has this thing of, you can't have regrets because you made a decision and you thought that was the best decision that you made at the time. Right, And whatever that happens to be, you did what you thought was best. And that was one thing I really took away from that job was that A, done is better than perfect. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I'm not a great planner in life, you know, and and my own podcast was a kind of example of that at the the beginning. I just kind of leapt in and got going with it. Oh, mine too. Without really (laughs) any idea about what I was doing. And then I learned as I went along. And that's the kind of person that I am is that I tend to be a diver in. And then I will troubleshoot as I go, yeah. and I think sometimes that has to be a little bit managed in the veterinary profession because actually you don't want to become reckless. And I've, I don't think I ever have been reckless because I'm too scared to be reckless, to be quite honest. But at the same time, I'm someone who is happy to to take plunges with things and think, "Oh, it'll be fine. I'll just work this out. I'll be all right." And I think that has, to a decent degree, served me quite well in at work. And you know, I think particularly those sorts of emergency experiences and I know that you've got a lot of experience in emergency work and stuff those are the ones where you have to make decisions quickly and having the capacity to be a authoritative and confident decision maker is not something that comes easily to everybody and it didn't used to come easily to me yeah but now I just think I have to make a decision fast and I just trust my own gut so much more than I ever used to yeah because Partly it's through experience, isn't it? Like you learn yeah. what's not cool to do in a certain situation. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes you just think, I think this is right and I'm gonna go for it and I'm gonna do it. And maybe it doesn't turn out to be, but at the same time, most of the time it does, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. My boyfriend and I would go to trivia and sometimes, you know, if we didn't know the answer, I would there would be certain situations where like, no, it's this. And he was like, okay, sure, you're so confident about it. And I'm like, sometimes I'm very good at being very confidently mm. wrong. And that's not a great <laughs> Me thing. Me too. But I'm just, I'm very confidently wrong sometimes. And, you know, usually when I'm like, oh, I think it's this or I think it's that. And I'm like a little bit right. I'm like, no, no, because that comes from work. Like sometimes even if you're not right and you like have backup plans, you just have to be very confident. And I'm not saying it's good to be false and be overconfident, but sometimes you just have to pick a path and go with it and yeah. understand that you may have to, you know, we say adjust fire in the military, but you adjust your your course later on once mm. you get more information. But given the information you have, you have to dive into it because being wishy-washy and going between seven different things isn't going to get you more information. So just getting out of that situation with one plan of attack is what you need to do so sometimes Mm. you're I'm confidently wrong sometimes I'm very confidently right a lot of times I'm very confidently right
1: (laughs) it's funny because actually just I'm exactly the same and um, it's one of the things that I think I have developed at work because horse owners are uh, majority women. And there's a real thing about kind of male equine vets that they come out of college and they always just seem to be really confident. And I think a lot of the girls are probably clinically a little bit more skilled with a little bit more knowledge. I'm making like sweeping generalizations here because... but but we so often (laughs) see it that these guys are they're often very good looking they're often really smooth and they just seem to fly through and all these women owners love them because you know they just have all the chat and whatever and I think particularly I hear this a lot from students that girls are often they say to me I'm really you know a bit nervous or whatever and now I think part of that is that as I've to make owners feel confident with your own skills you have to project a degree of confidence in yourself yeah. and when I was younger I definitely used to say to people well it could be this or it could be that okay well if I do these diagnostics I'll be able to differentiate between these things Right. and then we have this treatment plan and this treatment plan and you have option a b and c so you can do this and this is how much this will cost And I think that was all right. You know, it was all correct. Um, But I think sometimes if you offer people too many options, it makes you look indecisive right so now I have I've really learned over the years to try and boil things down to being very simple so I kind of I give people a maximum I try and boil things down to like a maximum of three things and if it's really complicated then clearly it has to be more complicated than that but I think just the keep it simple stupid theory really works for me mainly because I'm quite a simple person and I quite like things to be broken down very simply and so that's what I try and do and I think if you confidently say to people could be x y or z I think it's x this is the path we're going to take to Begin with diagnostically, and this is the reason why. And if that doesn't work, we can go down the Y or Z route. There you go. And I think that has is something that I've kind of learned communicatively seems to make people more receptive because I genuinely think that owners and in your case patients, if they're given too much information, they just switch off and they don't listen to you. Right. And people don't take on board what you're saying. So it pays to say a little bit less and say it very clearly. Than it does to give them a half an hour lecture about possible diagnoses and possible treatment plans. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, I've. You that, find that as well. Yes, definitely. Because, you know, I, obviously I overanalyze everything, and I'm like, oh, what are the oh, seven yeah. million differentials for this one thing? And you realize me understanding every single little thing it could be actually comes off as me sounding very unsure of myself, even though mm. I'm being very thorough. So. Yes. I have found that I'll say exactly what you said. Well, these are the things that it could be. I don't know yet. Just means we need more information. This is my plan to get more information. The most likely thing is this. If the tests don't tell me what I think they should say or, you know, if this treatment plan doesn't work, I have other plans Follow up, you know, you're coming back in a week and we'll discuss those at that time. Yeah, of course. So I don't say what my other plans are, those 17 other differentials of weird tropical diseases that you may have picked up. <laughs> like, I don't go down that route because they don't need to know that. But, and it's not to withhold information because I think they're stupid, but I have found that people just think that I seem like I don't know what I'm doing, even though I. I I know what I'm doing. It's just, it makes me look insecure or unsure of myself, even though that's part of the process. Not everyone understands our diagnostic process, that it's okay to not know right away. Um, They Mm -hmm. want answers immediately, which is understandable. So kind of giving them the I don't know answer, but most likely this with a plan is like oftentimes a really good answer if you say it confidently.
1: (laughs) Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And I think that's, you know, confidence is definitely something that comes with age as well. Yeah,
0: I think you're out to prove your knowledge base to a lot of people. But it's, Mm. it really, it can be tough, but also can be really helpful as far as learning who you are as a person and how to navigate life in general. I think it's kind of changed my personality for the better. Yeah.
1: But I think also staying humble Along with that, yeah. and, you know, you've just mentioned about seeking collaboration with other people. That yeah. is one of my favorite things about the job. The second I have a chance to ring up a specialist and be like, give me more knowledge. Yeah. That's I my love favorite that. part of
0: this podcast too. It's like, <laughs> I get to learn all these crazy facts from people yeah. that I would never talk to usually yeah. and yeah. you just yeah. expand your knowledge base of the world yeah. and it's just yeah. so
1: cool. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I would to be someone that I'm always like thirsting for what's new. Yeah. And like... Okay so give me more and if i don't think i know something enough i would definitely be the first person to pick up the phone to someone else and or and and i'm not scared to say to clients i don't know i think feeding yeah. bullshit is worse than anything else right and actually if i think being afraid to say i don't know is a dangerous thing for any medical or veterinary practitioner, because you're never going to know everything. So I think sometimes I will say either, I don't know, but I know someone who does, and I will find out. Or I don't know yet, but when I've got the results of X, Y, and Z tests, then yes, I'll be able to give you some more information. Yeah.
0: And that was one of the hardest things to learn coming out of school is how to say that Mm. confidently and totally. how to say that and, yeah. and say that appropriately to not freak people out
1: mm. yeah
0: it's okay to not know mm. we just need more information here and mm. then they're like okay yeah whatever
1: yeah. <laughs> and not
0: feel like you're letting people down
1: my last boss was great at that he was he's really really amazing about it. he's only a few years older than me but he's extremely experienced and it was him i heard on several occasions saying well this is weird you know this is not a usual case i don't know the answer to this and he's so confident at what he does know and he knows a lot that the second he says I don't know someone says oh well that must be a really odd case and I thought actually that's a great position to be in that you're so respected that when you say I don't know everyone immediately thinks oh this must be really rare Um, you know (laughs) and I thought actually that's where you want to aim to be is that you can do the basic stuff so well that people have great confidence in you yeah when you need help or you don't know it doesn't make you look like you don't know what you're doing, you know. And that's that's a, a tough place to get to. But when you get there, that's a great place to be.
0: I also have found that people respond very well to when you go, not saying I don't know, but, oh, this is a very unusual presentation. They oh, yeah. they love, love to that be one. unique. They, they're they're <laughs> yeah. very happy when you don't know because they're special. And it's a very unique thing. And you're like, <laughs> like oh, well, They say this is a very difficult case, so that's fine. This will take a little while, and you're like, "Okay, that's great." Yeah, yeah. Other times it is, so that's that's fine.
1: Yeah, 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 sure. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) I have loved hearing your stories, but tell us more about your podcast.
1: Oh, thank you, Christine. Yeah, so my podcast is called Smashing the Ceiling. And thank you for listening to the the episode that you've mentioned is one with somebody called Jamie Coleman, which listeners of this podcast may also be interested to hear Oh, it is a medical-based, that's a medical-based interview. She's a trauma surgeon in Denver. The other one that actually, I think you would also be interested in was one with a lady called Barbara Natterson Horowitz, who is a medical doctor at UCLA. She's a professor at UCLA, currently at Harvard, actually. And she is... Is someone who has she's a cardiologist but has investigated the links between human and animal medicine quite significantly she's very cool uh-huh. but anyway yes that podcast came about because I was having a wobble about my own career and uh I'd wanted to be a vet forever and ever and ever and I had this sort of list of things and I was like oh I'd love to be a journalist or I'd love to be a travel writer or I'd love to be a winemaker or whatever <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I love wine and I just was like how do you get into these jobs like how do you learn how to be these things if they seem because they just seemed really difficult and the long the short version of the long story is that I decided not to quit veterinary in the end and I have tweaked my career, I guess you would call it. So I now have kind of three different jobs um, that I run alongside one another. But what I did do then was start talking to other women about how they got into unusual and interesting careers. And what I wanted to do was make a podcast, which is a series of interviews uh, with women who do things a little bit differently. So the, the kind of tagline of the podcast is inspiring women with interesting careers. So it's kind of anyone who does something weird or quirky or unusual or if they've had a bit of an unlikely career path. And they basically talk to me about what they've done in their career, how they got there. So we talk a lot about like how their failures have contributed to what they've done or how the people who've mentored them have helped them in their career or what motivates them at work and all those kind of things. So it's really wide ranging. Some women have been the, the first to do what they've done. Some of them have just taken a kind of wiggly career road, but all of them have sort of walked the road less traveled a little bit. And that. Is the USP of the podcast. So, yeah, you can find us on iTunes if you just search for Smashing the Ceiling or wherever else you find your podcasts. And if anyone would like to give me any guest suggestions, I'm always keen to speak to new people. I've recently had a storm chaser who was very cool. And this week's one was with a clinical psychologist who specializes in people with psychosis, which was also really interesting. So, it's quite varied. There's some kind of wild and wackies and some which are just a bit cool. So, yeah. That's the kind of plug for my podcast. Thanks, Christine. (laughs) Yeah,
0: of course. It was so interesting. I was listening to it on the way to doing a call this morning. And I was listening just the way that she was talking about balancing life and this amazing career, but also having kids, which, of course, if you're anyone that works in medicine and you're like, I want to go to all these schools and do all this stuff. And how do you like have kids and do that? And I don't have kids, but that's always something that's just in the back of your mind. And she talked about it and it was just super motivating and how she does what she does and and I was just like all amped up and I was like yeah this is great so (laughs) I think anyone that obviously I'm I'm definitely a feminist and anyone that listens to this podcast would would definitely love listening to all the different stories on your podcast so yeah uh, smashing the ceiling out on iTunes yeah so, thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time on your
1: Sunday to talk to me. Oh, my gosh. No problem at all. Well, it's been such a pleasure. I, um, I've i had such a joy listening, like chatting with you, and I love listening to your podcast as well. So yeah, it's um, you're doing great work. I really, <laughs> thank- really enjoy it.
0: Thank you. You too. All right. Thank you so much to Naomi again for being on. And don't forget about our raffle for Dr. Howard's book that's ending this Saturday, April 13th. Make sure you are sending me screenshots that you are sharing it so you get entered. And if you want to reach out to me on social media, it's Antidotes Stories in Medicine Podcast on Facebook. There's that great Facebook group. Also, there is Instagram, Antidotes Podcast. Twitter is Antidotes Pod. I'm Christine the NP. And of course, you can always send me an email at antidotespodcast.gmail.com. And as always, thank you so much to Peter Hopkins, the wonderful musician for our custom music. Check him out on YouTube, on Instagram, and his website, PeteSingsThings.com. And keep sending me those messages. I love hearing from everyone, and I love hearing your stories. That's how I get in touch with a lot of my guests now these days. So reach out to me if you got a cool story. I want to hear it. I'd love to have you on. Have a great week. I will see you all next time. Bye.